Welcome to this week's episode of Expeditions on the Engaging Faith Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Frame. We're in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, verses 1 through 8, right in there, where we're talking about uh, just the four horsemen, the four seals, and exploring that whole idea across the historical interpretations that have been there. Uh, So this week we're going to talk about the rider on the black horse, and its role in the tribulation period or um, what folks look at as the end times and eschatology. So here we go. Let's jump in. We are in Revelation. This is week number 43, and we're in Revelation chapter 6. Uh, we've read the first seven verses. That's, the, that's the, the group of verses that we've been looking at as a whole, right? And so now we're on the third seal and the third horseman in Revelation chapter 6. 6 verse 5 through 6. So go ahead, Rick. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. So we've, we've got a very specific description right here. As a matter of fact, this one seems to be more specific than the other ones that we read, right? Than the other seals that have, have preceded it. So everybody, you know, whether they're preterists, historicists, no matter where they kind of fall, everybody's in agreement that overall this seal and this writer represents just governments bringing uh, great difficulty on people that through wars or financial disasters or whatever, it ultimately leads to shortages in food and, and commodities and things of that nature that we need to live. And this is a real important point, okay, that we need to live. And so the idea is that you, you've got this scale and we're told a denarius, right, is, is going to get you a very little amount of wheat and then there's another barley right that you'll get a third of the amount of barley or what have you so the idea is is really that you're going to have to get food as rationing as rationing but then you have this interesting statement whatever you do and i'm paraphrasing right whatever you do don't touch don't harm the the oil and the wine the wine you know it's like hey we can starve to death but let's party while we're doing it that's kind of the mindset that that is here a little bit don't don't touch the oil and the wine now i'm saying that jokingly okay i didn't get any laughs i'm not a very good christian comedian there's an exclamation mark it's a it's a it's a statement don't touch the oil and the wine don't damage it don't harm it kind of interesting right So we've been talking a lot. I'm going to just keep reiterating this point over and over and over again. You know, I'm not telling you what to believe at all. The idea of what we're doing is saying, here's the spectrum of of Orthodox Christianity, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, and how they have interpreted the book of Revelation from the first century church to today. So anything that I'm, that I'm telling you or, or, or sharing with you is well-established positions. I'm not making anything up, 
Okay. Now I have tendencies towards certain areas and I'll do my best to kind of tell you what my thought is about those or, or where I lean. I think most of you know, for me, I lean more and more towards the historicist position. And, and partly because the historicist position innately allows for future events, right? I mean, if, if, the, if revelation and prophecy is being fulfilled throughout church history, in the church age, then ultimately you have a future out there of events that haven't taken place yet, and to me the Bible speaks to them. Okay, and so these things are gonna are gonna happen. Uh, so that's just kind of my personal position. Not telling you not to take that position at all doesn't mean that there isn't anything of value. There's a lot of value in every one of these positions. So I've shared with you that there's actually when you look at it, it's hard to look at any of them and say that there aren't parts of each of them that applies to the book of Revelation, right? So nothing wrong with where you fall or, or what you believe, but I do think there are certain positions that uh, line up better and make Scripture make more sense and puts us in a better position than others, okay? That, that's, that's all I'm saying. So... The big question that we always have when we're looking at Revelation is when did this whole thing take place? So when are these seals taking place? And I can't, I can't remind you enough that we already know that these seals that we've been looking at are not as specific in their description and what they're talking about is where we're going to get to as we move further into Revelation, right? So, I mean, we know that. We know that there's, a, there's some level of sequence involved in Revelation, although the whole thing is not entirely sequential. You don't read from the beginning of Revelation and in sequence these events happen one after the other until you get to the end of Revelation, although that's a belief of, of, of futurism, right? Dispensational theology that, that that's in there. But there are sequences, right? But then there's recapitulation of events, too, where you see the same type of event happening, but maybe you're viewing it from a different perspective or angle. Don't forget this stuff, you know, and it's easy for us to do, especially when you're 43 weeks into Revelation, right, and we've, we've talked about some of this stuff in the past. It's easy to forget that. Don't, you know, don't, don't forget that reality. Keep reading. Keep reading. Keep thinking. Keep going back and looking at other passages. Man, turn them over in your mind. Ask the questions. Wrestle with God. Tell me, no, I'm struggling with that. I don't, I don't get that. You know, one for me at this point, especially when we get to the millennial, is the whole temple, the, the third temple. I struggle with that one. And I struggle with it for a number of reasons. Part of it is I can actually see a third temple coming into play. I mean, there's a whole lot of talk about it. There's a whole lot of preparations currently being made for it. Uh, but maybe that temple is entirely a false, it's a false temple, right? I think my struggle was, I, I don't see Jesus taking the throne in that temple and instituting sacrifices again. That, that's totally contrary to everything that we've seen in the, right? Yeah, I, I struggle with that. As yeah. So, so something's off possibly with how we interpret what we're reading and the conclusions we're coming to when we're looking at events that are taking place and we're trying to connect dots. So that means it's open and we've got to look and we've got to wrestle with it. So that's my encouragement 
to you guys. And that's really kind of this underlying question right now that we're dealing with. When does all this take place? I mean, that, that's a huge question that underlies all these different positions, right? When, when does this happen? Because we know when John the Revelator had it, but there's even disputes about that, and they all really <laughs> do center around Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD. So another area for me, I don't see how you can leave that event out, <laughs> uh, you know? And, and, and so I personally believe John, I believe in the earlier dating of John's revelation around 60, you know, 60, 65 in there, uh, not the later date. So, so this question is always here, right? So we're looking at the historicist and preterist and futurist and idealist. So what, how does the historicist look at this third horseman? I mean, this third horseman is Aminius, right? Well, they look at it, they focus in a lot on fiscal oppression, okay? So they're looking and saying, this is definitely, this is governments, and this is really a fiscal, F-I, S, right? So dealing with government administration, dealing with economics, dealing with the way trade and all these kinds of things are taking place, and the fact that emperors, man, they had total control for the most part of those events. So they look at, you know, as a historicist saying, hey, if, if you're going to be a historicist and how you interpret Revelation, well, then you've got to be able to look at history Right? And say, are there events that line up that make sense with what we're reading here? Well, given that these seals are a lot more general, I mean, we talked about the progressionists. Right now, we're looking at 25% of the world, verse 8, right, that we get to. 25% of the world's being impacted or affected by these four horsemen. All right? So as we think about that, we can almost see this more generalized. And we know that John was told, right, that this revelation he's, be, he's being given is telling, is, it has events of what? Pretty much from his perspective, the past, the present, and the future, right? Things that have, that have already been seen. Yeah. yeah. What you had seen. Exactly. Seen, yeah. And so this is talking to John, and we've already been the through the seven churches, right, and, and the letters that have gone, we know that events had been taking place, etc. So he had seen those things. And then there were things going on current, contemporary to John's time, which is where some of this confusion comes into play. But also this is where a historicist position comes into play. We know history that Revelation speaks to historical events. Can't get around it. Starts out telling you. And that there are other things in Revelation that are speaking to the future. Don't forget that stuff. So a historicist says, all right, this is really dealing with a known time in history that encompasses a number of emperors. Remember, we were talking about the civil wars that were taking place. Man, from, from really 180 A.D., the peace ends from 180 A.D. to about 300 A.D. or so, a 90-year period. You had 32 emperors. Right, remember this? 32 emperors and 27, on top of that, 27 others that were, you know, imposters. That's a lot of people that, you know, a population is going through confusion. And there's a lot of destruction taking place. So think of that. During this period, the third century, some of these emperors did some just massive taxation. 
Just a very tumultuous Very time. tumultuous time. Wow. Heavy, heavy taxation was happening during this window. And, and the taxes at this time could be paid in two forms. So one of these is money, right? I mean, obviously, money's always your preferred, pay me the taxes, give me the dough, right? But they could also pay taxes with produce. So the things that they grew. And there was a real particular lean towards you can really pay with it even better if you're paying with oil and wine. So don't harm the oil and don't harm the wine, right? So they even gave, I mean, history bears this out. Gibbon talks about it. Langtetius, or whatever his name is, talks about it. I mean, all these, these historians from these periods talk about it, that there was each of the produce, the oil, the wine, they were given monetary value or equivalency for certain amounts specifically to pay taxes with. I can see oil and wine because the shelf life is a lot longer yeah. than your other produce. More valuable commodity, right? So there was monetary equivalence given to these items. And you could pay your taxes. Well, particularly 218 to 222, there was an emperor, Caracalla, who, was, who really started imposing severe taxation. And, and he was so greedy and wanted so much, and this might sound familiar to our own time right at the moment, okay? is guess what he does? He looks, at the, he looks at the empire wide and he says, every free man that's, that is living in the territories of the empire, every single free man is now a citizen of Rome. Open borders. Oh, what'd you say? Open borders. Open borders. <laughs> so now he says, you're now a citizen. Gave, gave citizenship. And he did it for one reason. To get their money. To get their money. Well, the other thing is, we have gone, we didn't go over to Kuwait, you know, for, it was to protect the oil. Yeah, protect, the, protect oil. the oil. Arabs. Absolutely. Protect the oil. We protect the seas and stuff for the oil coming through. So so you bring up and kind of that. bring up a humanitarian thing, but it's for the oil. Yeah. The so so that's a shadow of a future event, right? is on the oil that the world uses. Absolutely. Man, our world runs on what? Oil. Oil. Now, did they know about oil during the Roman times like we know about oil? No. Okay. They knew about it, but they didn't know about it like we know about it. And the world didn't run on it. It's actually oil. 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 That's right. Yes. Get your pronunciation right. <laughs> Say oil. 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 So, man, oil throughout history of some type, whether it's olive oil, right, or it's oil, 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 that we know of today, man, the world runs on it. It's a precious commodity. It has great value. Don't harm it. Shadows and types. So, events from the past have application to events that are yet future. Can't forget that stuff. So, Caracalla, man, man, he wants to tax them more. This also, by the way, we're seeing during this period the real beginnings of the fall of Rome. And remember, only one side of Rome fell. The Roman Empire had two sides, west and east. The fall of Rome that we all talk about and that we have in our minds, that's the fall of the western Roman Empire. The eastern Roman Empire continued on into 1400, 1500. Okay? And... 
Even that's arguable. Some say the Eastern Empire of Rome has never ceased to exist. Well, if you know that and you, and you grab a hold of that reality, that kind of changes how you view and look at prophecy, doesn't it? And it should. So don't get stuck. Don't be stuck in a particular lane of thought and interpretation because if you are, if you're so rigidly that this is the way it is, you're missing out. Get out of your lane. Get out of your lane. Man, realize there's a bunch of other lanes. Pass some of those cars. Get going. Right? Start looking. Well, you got another one during this time period. Diocletian. Now, this is a big deal because a, a denarius is one day's wage for the average laborer during this period of time. One full day's income. Okay? A quart of wheat. Mm -hmm. Do you know how much that fed? That barely fed one person for a day. Let me read Ryrie's Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Denarius, a Roman silver coin that had a normal purchasing power of 10 quarts, 9.5 liter of wheat, or 30 quarts of barley. One quart of wheat was the daily ration for a soldier. Thus, a daily wage will buy food for only one person who will have to share with his family. Who will have to share. Wow. Or, or he's got to go, he can't get wheat because it's too expensive. So what does he have to go buy in lieu of wheat? Barley. Barley. Which because might be less nutritious. It's less nutritious. It's not as healthy as the wheat to feed his family. But if he wants to feed his family, he's got to go for the commodity the barley, that's a third the cost. Man, read, read this again. Read Revelation 6, verses 5 through 6 again. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. When I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wage and three quarts of barley for a day's wage, and do not damage the oil and the wine. <laughs> is that specific or what? <clears throat> and guess when this is taken? Third century. This is, this is 200 plus years after who? John. Mm -hmm. This is 200 years later, 200 years into the future from John's vantage point when he was given the revelation. Mm -hmm. we're, we're living in our time. And so how do we naturally want to look at all the prophecies in, in the Bible and how do we naturally want to apply it? Looking back. Well, we want to look back, but we want to say it's about who? It's about us. We're in it right now. Okay, well, and, and technically, according to Scripture, that's an absolutely true statement. <laughs> right? And we are closer to the end than they were, than the apostles and the disciples were with Jesus and Jesus told them. The end is near. Well, to God, a thousand years is like what? A day. A day. And a day like what? And God does everything with precision. And there are things that are important to him. For example, it's not a coincidence that Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. Not a coincidence. Man, the number 70 and 72, right? Those two numbers have great significance in Scripture. The number 7 in, in 
combinations. The number of seven and combinations of seven. Man, on Mount Sinai, when God was ratifying the covenant on Mount Sinai, did he only ratify that covenant with Moses? No, he didn't. When it was all done, he tells Moses, bring up the 70 elders and bring up Aaron. And man, these guys, when, when the law was ratified on Mount Sinai, it wasn't them looking in the smoke, in the cloud. They sat down with God. They saw God. And it describes and tells you what these 70, they saw. They sat down like we're here right now, and they had a meal, a ratifying meal with God. Okay, We miss all that stuff because we get these things in our brain. But under Diocletian, this taxation got so heavy that Josephus writes that it was crushing the entire empire. And it was so crushing that he had expanded it. He said, all right, now not only am I taxing you as a citizen, but now I'm going to tax your production. So you're like, does that sound familiar? <laughs> wow, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> okay, I'm going to tax your production. So, so everybody's land, whatever you produce on, you're going to be taxed. And it got so heavy and so crushing that it was beginning to destroy the empire. So what do the people do? Man, we all look for loopholes. Right, Tammy? CPA, we're all looking for tax loopholes. Well, it says this, but it doesn't say this. So guess what the people start doing? They didn't grow anything. Well, they just, that's right. They yeah. did, but they destroyed their yeah. crops. It was so bad that Diocletian had to put out an edict forbidding the destruction of olive groves and grapevines. And olive means peace and grapevine means the blood of The blood of the grape, right? Yeah. Drink this. You need oil to make bread. What do we anoint with? Oil. Lots of meaning, lots of symbolism, lots of idealist positions, lots of symbolism here. But is it a coincidence? Man, these are specific edicts. We know that this stuff is true. So I need somebody, because here's another interesting reality from a historicist viewpoint. Somebody grab Acts chapter 11. You got that, Frank? Yeah. Verse 25 through 30. Agabus is a prophet. And at this, at this time, earlier actually than this period, so this is now going to kind of blend this over into some of the preterist side. And historicists recognize this, okay? So Acts chapter 11, verse 25 through 30, the prophet Agabus, this is during Paul and Barnabas, going to Antiochus, makes a prophecy. And remember, Paul, this is, this is probably 55 or 50, maybe 45, well, no, it might even be earlier than that. This might be, say, 40 A.D., 45 A.D. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. 
The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Wow. We have a known historical event mm -hmm. that the Bible, that a prophet guided by the Holy Spirit prophesies a great famine is going to overtake all of the Roman Empire. And it starts to happen. We're not told how long. We know when. So we can go to history, to the time of Emperor Claudius, and we can see that there was a, a very severe famine happening throughout the empire. Preterists look at these events. These are all leading up to the destruction in 70 AD. This famine's taking place smack in the time period of, of just civil war beginning to happen among the Jews, okay, and the, and the Syrians that are living in the area. All of this is building itself up to finally in 70 AD this destruction taking place. So what do Preterists say? Well, of course, everything, the preterist position is everything Revelation deals with what? Man, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The whole thing is about the lead up to that and that event taking place. Everything after that to a preterist is the church age. Okay, so you got to remember, every one of these positions believe in the second coming of Christ. They all do. They all believe Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, He's bringing heaven with him, right? And, and the end of the age is, is going to culminate and the final redemption and restoration of all things will happen and the new heaven and the new earth will be created and the old will be destroyed and passed. Every one of these positions believe that. You know, one of my deals for a long time, many years, was I struggled with a lot of what Preterist said because that requires Jesus. Where does Jesus show up? Where does Jesus come back after the destruction of Jerusalem? I mean, if Revelation is all about that, well, where, do, where does that happen when Jerusalem's destroyed in 70 AD? And I've read some commentaries and people who tried to explain that, most of them very weak. But the ones that made the most sense is we're not saying that he came back at that time. We're saying an event took place and the church age was underway, but the second coming that you see in Revelation is yet future. It's out there. Okay, well now I can pay a little more attention to what a preterist has to say, especially when it's really hard to look at history and not see some of the things in Revelation happening in this event. Real difficult. Okay? So man, all of a sudden now I gotta pay attention a little bit. Well, the preterist says this, this black horse, this third rider, is all about the siege of Jerusalem and the lead up to the siege of Jerusalem and the shortages of food and the things that we know historically happened here. Because famine is death, right? And so here's some things that we want to realize. I need a couple people to go grab some passages for me. Somebody grab Leviticus. I got it. Yeah, chapter 26, verse 26. Then I need someone to go grab Lamentations. Chapter 4, that's the Old Testament, uh, verses 8 through and 9. And will you be able to go over to chapter 5 for verse 10? Okay. So remember the scales. We're, we're being given this, this image of these scales. 
that are in hand. And we're, we're given a monetary value. And that monetary value equates to what you can purchase. So this idea that rationing. So, I mean, we've got some specific things to look at. And not just any type of rationing, but a real specific kind of rationing. That it's going to cost you a day's wages to get one quart of wheat which is only going to be enough to barely feed one person. Mm -hmm. And if you want more than that, you're going to have to go to a lesser quality food to get enough to feed a family. And this is brought on by economic events, war, things that are happening on a national type scale, and natural occurrences. God actually warned Israel. God told Israel, if you rebel against me, guess what's going to happen? It's going to be bad. So we know there's a lot of things, but there's specific things he told Israel. If you rebel against me, there's some things that are going to happen. Leviticus 26, 26. When I cut off your supply of bread, ten women will be able to bake your bread in one oven, and they will dole out the bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. Wow. He tells Israel, you, you rebel against me, famine is going to come. Famine is going to be a judgment, and it's going to be a severe famine. And he gives some specificity to it, right? Well, we, we know, too, this horse is black. Well, this color is always associated with famine. Okay? Well, green, yeah, famine and death, but really green, the next horse we're going to look at, right? is death, and that's the pale rider. And that color, by the way, is green. And green colors mean things in the Bible, okay? So Lamentations, chapter four, verses eight through nine, and then chapter five, verse 10. But now they are blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as a stick. Those those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine. Racked with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the field. Uh, Chapter 5, five verse 10. ten. Yeah. Our skin is hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. Okay. So here's this color that's associated I mean, with, with famine, and ultimately you're going to die from famine, or you can, right? But there's, there's something else really interesting historically. Josephus records these, event, these events. And I showed you my chewed up book of Josephus from antiquity. <laughs> and uh, he gives detail. I mean, play by play, detailed. I mean, just overwhelming about what happened in Jerusalem. And here's one of these tidbits. I mean, we talked about faction. We talked about civil war basically happening among the Jews themselves and among the inhabitants of the area, right? Well, these continued on inside the walls of Jerusalem. When Jerusalem, when the siege was coming, you got to realize there was about almost, and this is interesting, there's almost a three and a half year. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> there's almost a three and a half year buildup that takes place. Jerusalem, they had, so they had, the point is they had time to prepare. They knew something was coming. They knew Rome was coming for them, right? Well, 
Jerusalem was a fortified city. And not only is it fortified, but there's natural water underneath Jerusalem. Specifically, underneath the Temple Mount area. Been there and seen it. Absolutely. And and we're going to see later in Revelation, man, what comes gushing out of the temple? A flood of waters. Okay? So the point is right now, for this particular deal, Jerusalem has plenty of access to natural water. Water's a non-issue. So they're, they're not going to die from lack of water being, see, you know, being besieged. So what's going to kill them, if anything, is going to be food, right? They had ample stores of food inside Jerusalem. So much food that they could have withstood a a siege against Jerusalem for a very, very long time. So what happened? They fought one another inside Jerusalem. They turned on each other. They turned on each other because of these factions. The civil war mindset that was taking place amongst the Jewish and the inhabitants of the land, all leading up to this time period where Jerusalem is going to be besieged. Okay? There's infighting that's going on. And these factions, Josephus literally records that one faction would go and destroy the other faction's storage of grain. There was so much infighting, they were destroying each other's food. You've got this entire event happening. And God warns them, tells them this is going to take place. Factions arise inside Jerusalem. They start destroying each other's food. Now, what about the oil and the wine? I need somebody to grab Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 53. And then I need someone to go, who's going to do that? Who'll get Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy. You got got Deuteronomy 28, 53. Then I need someone to go grab Luke chapter 21, verse 20 through 23. Do I have a taker? You got that? Jennifer. All right. And then I need someone to grab Luke chapter 23, (coughs) verse 28 through 29. You got that, Frank? All right. So here's the thing. Here's what else Josephus records. Deuteronomy or Luke? uh, You get Luke 23, verse 28. Luke 23? Luke 23, 28 through 29. Josephus records that things get so bad. So remember, this is why the preterists are looking at this event. That things get so bad that mothers eat their babies. Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay. Can you imagine this? That inside the walls of Jerusalem, things are so bad. Murder, mayhem is going on. These factions are fighting. And, and they destroyed each other's food. The Romans didn't have to do anything. Really. They destroy each other's food to the point that the only thing left to eat for some who are starving to death is they start eating their dead babies. Okay, And there's a recorded event of, I think, killing a baby and eating it. But they eat their babies. So, Deuteronomy 28, verse 53. You will eat your children, the flesh of your sons and daughters, the Lord your God has given you during the siege and hardship your enemy imposes on you. You will eat the flesh of your womb. Do you think now... so, So here we have this going on, and remember, Jesus foretelled the destruction of Jerusalem. And he tells them why, right? You didn't accept me. Mm-hmm. You didn't accept me. 
I came in the flesh. I was prophesied by the prophets. Here I am, flat out in your face, doing miracles, doing all the things the prophet told you. And really, and you're not accepting me. And why? Because what were they looking for? A king. A man, a king, and a conqueror. Which tells you the best scholarship in the world can get it what? Wrong. <laughs> okay? But it doesn't change that the truth is always there. If you'll search for it, if you'll think about it, if you'll pray about it. And that's what, it's no different for us today. So because of this, what does Jesus say? Luke 21, verse 20 through 23. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in the Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. Luke 23, verse 28 and 29. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. So, can you ignore the preterist? No. You can't, can you? Can you ignore what history tells us took place in Jerusalem in 70 AD? No, you can't. Futurism says all of this is about the seven years at the end. Now, we all know there's going to be a final seven years. <laughs> Nobody argues that, okay? And it's going to be bad. We all know that and, and, and totally believe that there are prophecies that pertain to that period, no question, okay? But they say everything that we're reading, everything about Revelation happens in that period. And before I get there, one other thing. The oil and the wine, by the way, in the preterist side, is... Man, we know the guy's name. Josephus records the name of the head of the faction that sacked the temple, the Jewish faction inside Jerusalem, that things got so bad. He led his faction into the temple and took the oil and the wine that is for temple use. Now, do you think God wanted his name recorded in history because we know it? And he took and ransacked and pillaged the temple. So, again, make sure you don't harm the what? The oil and the, and the wine. So futurists, they say this all happens in the future. And it's all economic. It's all upheaval that deals with this world government and world power that during this time of perceived peace is able to gain final control of all oil, of all money and means of production, and all food. And that the idea of the oil and the wine, and the idealists also kind of get this, is those are luxury, in any history, those are luxury items. So to them they say it's the rich people, the the global capitalists and this capitalist system 
that is able to get a hold of these things. And when the rest of us are starving to death, what are the rich doing? They're partying. They're able to feast on luxuries because they have the money and the control of it and they can maintain it. Now, that that's very plausible, isn't it? I mean, we're all living in today and we know the reality of that. What I mean, you know, the last five years, what have the rich people, super rich, been doing? Man, they've been making bunkers. <laughs> they've, been, they've been going to... to New Zealand and places like that and building underground bunkers. And I'm not talking about a couple of flaky ones. I mean, like all of them. They're making bunkers and stocking them and they're having meetings about what happened. Can I really trust my security guards? Because if everything goes really bad, what's going to really prevent them from coming after me? You know, they're having these kind of meetings and this is real stuff. That's the paranoia that was... Paranoia, that's right. And, and what do we... We see just... Man, incredible wealth being sucked down into the hands of a small group of people. So we can identify with that. So they say, hey, this is all ultimately during this peace and this consolidation, it's going to lead to the justification of the Antichrist putting in place the what? The mark of the beast. Mm -hmm. And a system that you can only buy, sell, and trade if you have his mark. The mark that God says, you better not take that. Because if you do, you're going to suffer my wrath and judgment. Go ahead. They're doing it right now in Sweden. Everybody's been told they have to receive oh, yeah. a, a chip in their hand yeah. today. The technology yeah. is there and is being developed. So we're seeing. So even futurism, guess what? Man, when you're talking about future possibilities, hey, we better listen to some of this stuff too because guess what? We're seeing it. Well, my grandmother told me back in the 50s, do not get married and do not have children <laughs> because this is coming. And she said, you probably won't see it, but you'll see your grandchildren suffer through it. Well, they're, they're, you know, but God says children are what? They're a blessing. So the last thing, idealists. They kind of hold into some of this stuff, but here's a really interesting point they make. Somebody go grab Ezekiel chapter 5 verse 16 and 17. You got that? And then someone go grab Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 21 through 22. Who's got it? You got that, Pam? All right. So go ahead. When I send against, when I send against them the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. So I will send against you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Ezekiel 14, verse 21 through 22. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments, sword and famine and wild beast and plague, to kill its men and their animals? Yet there will be some survivors, sons and daughters, who will be brought out of it. They will come to you, and when you see their conduct and their actions, you will be consoled regarding the disasters I brought upon Jerusalem. Every disaster I have brought upon you. Wow. The four dreadful judgments. Mm -hmm. And we're in the four horsemen, 
and the four horsemen just so happened to cover all four of those dreadful judgments. The, the, the idealist says God has used the four dreadful judgments to judge evil societies throughout history. And so that's why the idealists say, hey, right now, what are we looking at? We're looking at God's operation judging the nations for their sin and their disobedience throughout history. And as history marches on, specific prophecies become fulfilled, right? And it's all walking and marching us because they get worse and worse towards the final end. Well, man, and they can point to Scripture and say, see, here, 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 we just read two of them. I think we need to listen to all of these positions. And we need to, if we are only in one, we have a very narrow view. If we try to look at all positions as best we can and pray through and search out Scripture, we're going to get a more, more complete picture of what God's telling us. Which means we can be more prepared and ready and less fearful because of all the imaginations that we have. Not that the imaginations aren't right in some form or fact. They will be. That's the application of the, of the scriptures. That's right. Yeah. To make you get ready. Yeah. Amen. One thing about it, with uh, all the discussion we've had around the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the devastation there, it, it does definitely point you to uh, John writing Revelation prior to 70 AD. Uh, I, I think some of the verses we read sure uh, convict you pretty well of that. I agree. And it's baffling why any believer would try to hold to that position because then it eliminates a lot of really important history mm -hmm. in terms of how it would apply to prophecy in the end time. You know? And they don't eliminate it in their minds. They know it's a significant event, but Anyway, Lord, we just thank you, Father God, for who you are. We praise you just for the time that we're able to spend digging into your word. And we just ask, Father God, that you seal it in our hearts, that your Holy Spirit minister to us and, and help us to understand it under, and understand what you want us to know about it and how it impacts us personally in our walk and relationship with you. Lord, we just thank you for today, for this morning. We pray, Father God, uh, that you be lifted up and that you be glorified in this time of worship and service. And we ask this in agreement in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.